Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Bill Shapiro, writing recently in the New York Times Magazine, in an article entitled The Strange Lure of Other People's Photos, says we're all drowning in our own pictures. Last year, we humans took an estimated 1.3 trillion of them. He goes on to say, there are photos I reach for with intention a couple of times a year when I find myself needing to look at life with different eyes. These pictures, taken by average people with average cameras, are among the thousand or so that I've picked up at flea markets, junk shops, garage sales, and once in a while on eBay. We'll talk about that. Uh, Bill Shapiro is the former editor-in-chief of Life Magazine, founding editor of Life.com, which won the National Magazine Award for Digital Photography in 2011. He's born in Los Angeles. His books include What We Keep, 150 People Share the One Object That Brings Them Joy, Magic, and Meaning. Also, Other People's Love Letters, 150 Letters You Were Never Meant to See. And the children's book, Gus and Me, the story of my granddad and my first guitar, which he co-wrote with Keith Richards, legendary Rolling Stones guitarist, and Barnaby Harris, his oldest friend. August, by the way, reached uh, number two on the New York Times bestseller list for children's books. He curates uh, fine art photography exhibits and uh, serves on the Art Advisory Board of South by Southwest. Uh, Bill Shapiro, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it. Uh, So you're uh, a photographer, obviously. uh, It's important in your life. How did you get into photography? I started taking pictures when I was in eighth grade, and that was, you know, predated digital photography by some <clears throat> decades. Um, and I actually was, you know, what got me excited was taking pictures of the Grateful Dead. So I would go to shows oh. and just take a bunch of pictures. Yeah, the Grateful Dead. <laughs> what was it about the Grateful I guess a fan of the music, right? I was a fan of the music, and at that point you could sort of wander up close to the stage and take pictures, and then... I would go to my dark room and develop them, and and since they were always touring, you could you know three days later go to the next show, and in my case, you know sell the pictures. Mm. So, but it was fun to capture, try to capture some of the magic that's on stage, you know, in an instant uh, on a small piece of paper. So, uh, what else uh, got you interested? The Grateful Dead, and then then it gets you make a little money <laughs> selling those. But what uh, what uh, what were some other attractions? Uh, I love the concept, and I've always loved the concept of being able to stop time, or at least the the illusion of being able to stop time, and to be able to go back and also see through someone else's eyes, to 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 look at someone else's photograph and know exactly what they were seeing, you know, five years ago, five minutes ago, across the world, a hundred years ago. Um, that, that's always held some magic for me. Mm. You know, it's like it's like it's like time travel, and it it's it, it's it's a shortcut to empathy because you are literally in the other person's shoes for a second, seeing what that person saw at that moment. You write in this article, uh, "We're all drowning in our own pictures." Last year, we took an estimated 1.3 trillion of them you know, collectively. Um, you say there are photos you reach for, you know, a couple times a year. You're, you're talking about other people's photos, and it gets into what you were just saying, I suppose. Is that what that does for you, to look at life through other people's eyes? Well, that's exactly right. Um, you know, in, in what I was talking about in the article was, you know, I have tons of pictures of my family and friends and, and, and whatnot around the house, but I have started collecting 
what's known as found photos, uh, just regular pictures taken by, you know, snapshots by regular people over the years um, with regular cameras. And what I get from that, what you were sort of alluding to, is being able to kind of put myself in, in their shoes and try to think about what life was like for them. And so at times of unrest, and that could be, you know, like like now when, when we're, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic or, or personal un- unrest, like when my daughter's leaving for college, um, I kind of look at these photos and, and they help me think that the world is bigger and longer um, than my sort of self-centered um, moment right now, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think we need that in these times of pandemic? Need it all the time, probably, but need it more than ever in, well, in yeah, these I mean, times? Well, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I do think we need it all the time, and I think especially at a time when our country is so divided, it really helps to think and we are all in our own social media bubbles, you know, hearing the kind of news we want to hear and the opinions we want to hear. It does help take us out of that um, bubble and expose us to something bigger than ourselves and, and, and remind us that, in my case anyway, people have gone through uh, world wars and pandemics um, and uh, famine and, and, you know, and disease and no medicine, et cetera, et cetera. And some of them, many of them have weathered the storm. And it, and it helps for me at least to think about the fact that other people have been feeling what I'm feeling now. Hmm. You, you say that uh, you turned to this about a decade ago, noticing, turned to looking, turned to hunting. Do you remember now the the first uh, you know photo that you picked up from a flea market or, or wherever? It, it's not the first. It was one of the first. It was um, a picture of a young woman um, standing in front of a greyhound bus, and and the reason that was so interesting to me. And again, it's not necessarily a beautiful picture. It's three by five. It's black and white. The edges are bent. It's kind of faded, but there was. It, it felt like the beginning of a story to me. So this woman would, would, would get on this bus, and then what would happen to her? What, what would her life be like after this trip? And it, it just felt like there was a world of story in this, in this little picture. Uh, you say you are particularly drawn to, you write here, the quietly composed pictures that hold a sense of an unfinished story. So th- this is an unfinished story. Many photographs are, right? Well, <laughs> perhaps all, because it's, it's, a, it's a snapshot in time. That's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's 100% true. There are some that, to me, strike me as more evocative in that way than others, like this Greyhound bus. I mean, who knows? Maybe she was getting off and she was at the end of her journey. But I, the way I like to interpret it, and this is the beauty of photography, you, you never quite know what's going on around the frame, um, you know, outside the frame. But she was getting she was getting on the bus going somewhere. And so that, that really did, you know, feel like more story than somebody, you know, taking a picture of their shoes or something like that. Mm. By the way, I was looking at uh, your your Twitter account, which is uh, at Bill underscore Shapiro. Um, 
and you, this struck me. Uh, you say you you post a uh, or, or you repost uh, something from Daniel Etter. You recall this? Uh, you say yeah. you love stories about that. What came after the picture was taken? Could you describe this photo that that he took, and then uh, and then talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. I, I may get a couple of the details wrong, but but maybe you can you can help me out. Um, so. Uh, so Daniel is, or or was at the time, shooting an assignment for the New York Times, and I believe he was in Greece. And this was when, some years ago, when the refugee crisis was starting, um, and he saw a boat, um, you know, a little sort of rubber raft, barely, you know, on the verge of sinking, barely making it into land. All these people poured off, and and there was a family, and it was a, a father. And, um, you know, his wife and, and two or three kids. And the photograph itself is the father who was stoic until both feet hit the ground and he was safe and his family was safe. And his face was just exploding with emotion. He was crying. There were so many complicated emotions, but mostly, I think, relief. Um, and he was hugging his two kids, and their arms are sort of very majestically um, uh, positioned. And um, uh, it, it, the you know the the photo sort of went viral at the time because in that moment it really did capture what it's like when you are safe and when you when you have saved your family um, from whatever he was running from. Yeah, as you described it very well, everything's there, right? It 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 is so compelling, and we can we can relate so you know so much. And then you you say what you like about this is Daniel Letters has gone on to, uh, to tell us what happened. Right. You know he he he's told the rest of the story so, in this case. So so what happened was um, he felt close to this family because he captured them in this in this extraordinary human moment, and he followed up with them um, and and sort of kept an eye on them or kept uh, apprised of them. And he learned at some point that he had told them that they were fleeing from, sorry, they had told him that, that they were fleeing from Syria. He learned, in fact, that they were fleeing from Iraq and that they had uh, they had said they were fleeing from Syria because it would make immigration officials more um, responsive um, to, to, to them and more sympathetic. And then he followed them to um, Germany, and he met with them and photographed them there. And then he learned, and this was really the heartbreaking part, you know, they sort of settled in Germany, that the father's mother, who was elderly and, and um, in Baghdad, got in touch with him and said that she was close to death, and would he come back to Baghdad and see her one last time? And his family begged him not to do that because they would probably not be able to get back to Germany a second time. And he decided not to do that. And the mother beseeched him, you know, please see me before I, before I leave this earth. And so he decided to go. And his family decided to go with him because they feared they would never see him again if he went and he wouldn't be able to get back to Germany. So they all went, or all but the oldest son. And in fact, the mother died um, when they were en route. Uh, and so he, he, she knew that he was coming. He told her he was coming, but he never made it. And they are in Baghdad still. 
And I just found uh, this photographer's commitment to these people and to the story behind the photo to be extraordinary and of great value to those of us who, who sort of attend to these things. Yeah, that's uh, it, yeah, <laughs> sad. You'd hope for a more happy ending, right? But uh, it, but it is very interesting, compelling to, to to learn the rest of the story, which, which in most cases you don't. Especially these photographs you collect, They're, you know, the the people are in most cases long gone. Well, that's exactly right. Um, you know, you, you really have no idea um, what the context of the story is. Um, who these people were, what, you know, what, what they were going about on the day when, this, when these photos were taken. You know, you have to remember now we take photos, you know, 25 times a day, and it might just be a bird perched on a fence that draws us to take out our, our iPhone and take a picture. Back then, taking a picture was um, a rarer act because every you had to bring your photo, your, your camera with you, uh, oftentimes, they were big cameras. They didn't fit in your pocket. Um, every photo cost you money. You would, at the end of the the roll of film or the plate, you'd have to have it developed. Um, you know, you, so it was an expensive, time-consuming process. And so people didn't sort of take photos willy-nilly. So you always have to wonder, why was this moment that looks so normal to us now worthy of taking a photo? Um, and, and, but what's, what's interesting to your point was that, you know, when, when people saw the story in the New York times, I got a lot of, um, uh, email and, and, um, notes to people on my Instagram account. My Instagram account is, is more focused on photography than, than, than the Twitter account. Um, a lot of notes through Instagram, uh, Instagram saying like, you know, your story kind of to me to go into the basement or the attic, and I found these old photos, and I did some research, and um, yeah, that store that that my grandfather is standing in front of, he actually owned that store. I didn't realize that, and so that you know that was really kind of kind of cool, and and kind of helped helped finish the story, if not finish it, helped helped finish it. Do you think something fundamental has changed? We, we you know we snap off so many photographs these days because it's so easy. Uh, whereas you mentioned it was, it was more of an event uh, uh, back then. Did it, uh, do you think we'll have some of these, uh, you know, photos 50 years from now? Uh, does, do these photographs mean something different to, to us, or, or is it just a difference in volume? I think that is just such an excellent question, and I, and I think the, the answer is what you, what you pointed to is, I do think the photos mean less um, because they are just more disposable um, and they don't exist as physical objects. And the truth is, on a bigger, on a bigger level, you know, our relationship to objects in general is actually changing. Um, with photographs, we keep everything in the cloud. Um, and so it's easy to take a, a photo, even a good one, but then you take 10 more that day and you kind of forgot about that good one and you might stumble across it as you're flipping through your phone later, but you might not. Um, but we, we don't touch these things. And um, so the cloud is changing our relationship to objects because we just, you know, there we have fewer books. We don't have, you know, record albums or, or eight track tapes um, or, or, or videos, you know, there it, it's all, it's all out there. Um, 
so, so, you know, I think the other thing that's changing our relationship to objects is the threat of climate change. Um, I think it's making us a little bit more attuned to what's really important to us and, and what we would take with us, um, you know, if there are tremendous fires like there were last summer um, or floods at the coastline. Um, so I think it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big question. And I want to get into, uh, in fact, your your book is all about this, right? To what we keep. Uh, but but uh, I guess to just to tease that discussion, you you do think our our relationship to objects is is changing? I do, um, I do. I think um, you know, I think we have, you know, in spite of America's bye 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 um, sort of materialism, I I think that we have um, fewer of many things uh, in our homes. And, and, and for me, I, because of my particular focus, a lot of that is pictures. And because pictures, you know, what's so fascinating to me is that there's this little three-by-five piece of paper with a little bit of ink on it um, that is worth, I don't know, fractions of a penny. And yet these thin paper objects are the things that we many people would reach for um, if they're running out of a burning building, you know, uh, or the things that they keep with them in their in their wallet, or that they look at in times of um, stress or longing or whatever. And so, the more those things are out of sight and sort of in the cloud, I think that does change our relationship to the material world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was just uh, talking to a friend the other day, and and remembering the first book that I, I got from my elementary school library, I still remember it. I, <laughs> I remember the feel of it. It was a book about balloons. What book was it? Uh, I what can't remember the title, it? but it was a book about balloons. Um, and I remember the feel of the book, and the, and then the, the librarian carefully placed it in a plastic uh, cover, you know, so I guess I wouldn't huh. go- goober it and. Uh, uh, on my way home, huh. and I, I remember the feel of that, and and then contrast that to today. I read most of my readings in the cloud, right? It's it's on on a device. It's it's it, it is a different right. experience, right? Um, you know, books um, have a smell to them, and they have and they have a weight. And um, you know, when you were mentioning that book, I immediately flashed to one of the first books I remember called um, I think it was called The Red Balloon which is a, a story of a kid in, in Paris who who's, who's essentially his best friend is a red balloon. And it's a book of photographs, um, and he loses the red balloon. Um, so, yeah, that brought me back in a very visceral way to that to that to one of my mm-hmm. early books. Yeah, very interesting. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to have you describe a couple of these photographs. Um, I... I <laughs> This is probably having the effect on other people uh, uh, as well, but I, I just struck me in this uh, article in the New York Times Magazine, this photograph of this uh, couple in the middle of nowhere, uh, yeah. the, the man sitting on a chair. So one of the questions is, well, where where did that chair come from? You know. Anyway, let's get into that uh, when, we, when we come back. We're talking with uh, Bill Shapiro. Uh, and his very interesting article in the New York Times Magazine recently, it's uh, called The Strange Lore of Other People's Photos. He's author of What We Keep, 150 People Share the One Object That Brings Them Joy, Magic, and Meaning. We'll get into talking about that. And Other People's Love Letters, 150 Letters You Were Never Meant to uh, See. Uh, more following this.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And S.E. Needham Jewelers, offering custom jewelry consultations with on-premise designers and goldsmiths. Open 10 to 7 Monday through Saturday. Located in the middle of the block at the sign of the clock. Information at seneedham.com. Did you know that children with autism can learn to communicate and play with other children when they receive early and intensive intervention? Research has shown that programs based on the principles of applied behavior analysis can help children with autism reach their potential. By identifying each child's specific strengths and weaknesses, professionals can create individualized programs that give the child the opportunity to practice appropriate behaviors and receive positive reinforcement. Through early intensive behavioral intervention, children with autism can learn the skills necessary for success in kindergarten and beyond. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Bill Shapiro. Uh, he's the former editor-in-chief of Life Magazine, founding editor of Life.com. He is uh, author of What We Keep and Other People's Love Letters. Also, Gus and Me, that book is a children's book that he co-wrote with Keith Richards. Um, and he's on Instagram, at uh, Bill Shapiro. Uh, and uh, I discovered this article, uh, just enjoyed this article so much, uh, The Strange Lure of Other People's Photos, which is uh, the New York Times. Uh, he says we're all drowning on our own pictures, but uh, he has uh, taken up collecting uh, other people's uh, photos. Um, reaches for those, he says, with intention a couple times a year when I find myself needing to look at life with different eyes. So, uh, and you're welcome to join the conversation uh, here, uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com with your question or comment, or you could call us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. So, Bill Shapiro, the, this uh, is just so striking. I'm sure this is why you uh, chose this to, to, to feature, you know, you have thousands of photographs in your collection. Uh, this is one that's in the article. Uh, so describe this. This is a, a, <laughs> this is a couple in the middle of nowhere, and he's sitting on a chair. Uh, uh, tell us more about this photograph. So it, there's a little bit of an American Gothic feel to this, um, but you're right. It is it is the driest. They are, they are sitting in the driest, dustiest, emptiest place you've ever seen, um, flat earth. And the man looks to be... 65, 70, well, well dressed, sitting in a chair, and his uh, a woman, perhaps his wife, right behind him. They both look so stern and so ticked off. Um, you know, it's sort of hard to imagine what made them so angry if it wasn't the <laughs> photographer um, or, or maybe the beating sun. Mm. But the fact that there's a chair, as you said, right in the middle of, of you know, nothing is striking. Um, the fact that the man is in the chair instead of the woman, and this photo is probably 100 years old, is also striking. Um, and, and the other thing that it took me a few times looking at the picture to notice is that there's lots of thin little sticks that sort of sprout from the ground, 
um, in various places, which which kind of led me to think that maybe maybe this was the beginning of a town um, that was sort of being surveyed for buildings or streets. Yeah, it's it's just and and the mystery, right? Were they homesteaders? Uh, what you know, what what was going to happen here? And that's part of the attraction here. You don't know the rest of the uh, of the story, right? It, well, but, well, that's exactly right. And there's one more detail that I didn't even mention in the New York Times story. Um, but if you zoom in on this picture, the gentleman has a small star on his lapel, and it, it, it's too small to see if he's a sheriff. But it certainly looks like it, um, and so that that you know is further mystery. But of course, it makes me think. Okay, so where where is this, and and did a city grow here, and was he a homesteader or or the law? Um, have I been to that city or that town? Do I know people who live there now? You know, it's just it raises so many questions for me. Mm-hmm. And it's the you know often we want uh, often we want certainty we want answers but in this case it's the it's the mystery that uh, I guess uh, is attractive to you. That's exactly right, and and um, that's the fun part. And you can sort of spin your own adventure a million ways. You know, uh, you can you can look for a lot of clues, and you can find a lot of clues, and figure out you know probably how old they are within a couple of years and what year this photo was taken within a couple of years. And, and maybe from the shadow, you can tell about what time it was, you know, it's not a long shadow here. So maybe it's just a little afternoon. Um, but ultimately you, you have no idea what's going on. Mm. Uh, tell me about this uh, other photograph that you feature in the, uh, in the article. Uh, it, it's a, it's a family, a large family. They're gathered at a, at a long table. Uh, the kind of soft light. Tell me about this. Yes. So, so uh, it's a long table, and there's a, a pitcher of, of water or something in the in the front, and they're they're at a meal time. Everybody's got a glass or something in their in their hand. Uh, people are smiling. It's a black and white photo. Um, it appears to be golden hour. You know, about dinner time, and the sun is coming through the trees and through the window and through the their glasses and through this pitcher in the foreground. Um, and I just love it because it recalls this sense of a family together at a very special time. Um, I actually got a note on my Instagram account from someone who recognized the feeling of this photo as being um, uh, sort of a family camp uh, in Wisconsin. So who knows if that's true, but I love getting those little tidbits and clues. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to read this paragraph from the article. You say, not every shot is so mysterious. I have photographs from the 1920s of people doing pretty much the same things we do today. Drinking, a booze, kissing, cross-dressing, picnicking by a pound, uh, holding their children in the air with a love so fierce you can feel it a hundred years later. Just just life, right? But but other people's lives. Um, that's exactly right. And they're other people's lives, but what's sort of magic to me and what's, what resonates for me is that when I can recognize myself in those pictures, when I can see, you know, a father a hundred years ago holding their child in the air or, or, or holding their child's hand, just taking their first steps, I have pictures of myself doing those exact same things. And the fact that we humans repeat these moments 
again and again and again is meaningful. And then there's the fact that if we're doing the exact same things and marking those, those moments in the same way with a photograph because of their importance, I suspect we were feeling the same way or very similar, the same feelings of maybe, you know, pride or love or humility or whatever it was. And that's, and, 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 and that's then where I start to go, where we started our conversation to why I look to these photos, um, you know, in, in a time of crisis or, or pandemic is because I feel like there are people who are feeling the same way that I am now, um, you know, scared, protective, angry, and somehow that's, that's comforting to me. You write, uh, I love these pictures. Speaking of your found uh, pictures, you say, I also hate them. They remind me of time going by. So the, the pictures that I, that I say I hate are uh, actually sort of the, the fo- you know, my own family photos. I see your, um, your photos, photos yeah. Take, okay. the, yeah, the photos that I've taken of my children. And I don't hate the photos. Um, I love them. <laughs> but, but they do remind me that um, how fragile those moments are and how quickly how quickly they pass us by and how, you know, that, that little kid that I'm, you know, is on my shoulders, um, you know, is now carrying the heavy table for me because he's stronger than I am. And, you know, it, it, it really does make me incredibly aware of how fast time moves and how little time we have. You, it's really struck me at the end of the article, uh, you say it's not lost on you that the reason you're able to get these found photographs is that somebody discarded them. Well, that's, that, I mean, that's exactly right. And if you, you know, if you go into a junk store or a flea market, there are often bins of, of dozens or hundreds of these photos. And these are pictures of people who are somebody's parents or grandparents or children. And it's so hard to imagine how these pictures ended up for sale, um, you know, essentially in a junk shop. Um, did, did somebody uh, not recognize them in a family photo album? Was it, was it that many years gone by? Or did they not care? Or did they get in a fight with somebody? Or, or did they have to leave their home? Or did they have to sell these? And when you think about what it would take for me personally to unload some of these precious pictures of my own family, um, it's hard to think about how these photos come to be for sale, you know, for a couple of bucks, um, you know, in a, in a Sunbelt junk shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's hard to tell what'll happen to all our digital photographs. You know, at some point pass on, and uh, uh, you know somebody gets control of, I guess our our part of the cloud. I don't know what's going to happen there. Well, that's that's such a great point. You know, will will my children actually want my forty five thousand digital photographs? <laughs> Um, will will they care for them? Will they will they continue to pay the dollar ninety nine to keep the class space? Mm. You know, for the next seventy years, I don't know. 
You, you end the article in a profound way. Uh, you, you cite neuroscientist and author David Eagleman. I'll just read this part. Uh, uh, he's written, we all die three deaths. First is when the body ceases to function. Second is when the body is consigned to the grave. Third is that moment sometime in the future when your name is spoken for the last time. That's very poignant. You say there's a fourth, a fourth death. Well, yeah, um, you know, I, I love that that quote from Eagleman, but uh, you know, I, I think there may be a fourth death, which is you know the moment that the last remaining picture of you is seen for the very last time, uh, because in a way, then then you are sort of forgotten. Um, then then you know your image and your your existence is is kind of gone um so it's even it's even beyond your name um it's it's what you looked like so that's an important connection then we you know you we've, we've talked about a couple of these photographs and you, you can see these in new york times uh, and you have these in your you know thousands in, in your collection um you're you're in, in a way preserving the the lives of these people Yes, and I feel um, this kind of odd sense of responsibility now to keep these photos with me, <laughs> um, to the chagrin of my um, uh, girlfriend and the people who share my house with me. <laughs> but um, I, I do feel like I like I I am keeping them alive in some way by holding on to these photos because I don't know if there are other photos of these people floating around or if in fact I have the last photo of this man and this woman, you know, in the middle of a dusty uh, expanse sitting on a chair, and and if I do, I, I'm not ready to let that go. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely, and especially it seems important in in these times, as you write, you know that. Uh, uh, times of crisis, times of pandemic, for example. Yeah, exactly. When when we're when we're all feeling how um, fragile things are, and how and how short life can be. Well, let's take another break. When we come back, I'd, uh, I I really want to get into other people's love letters. Uh, this is some <laughs> some interesting stories here. Um, I was reading. Uh, the the first love letter that wasn't addressed to you, <laughs> you got that. That's a fascinating story. How do you tell that and and get into to some of this? Some similar themes, I, I would imagine. Um, that's that's uh, one book uh, from uh, Bill Shapiro. Another book is What We Keep. One hundred fifty people share the one object that brings them joy, magic, and meaning. And we've been talking about a very interesting article in New York Times Magazine about uh, other people's uh, photos. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Youth Conservatory, now offering online piano lessons and group music classes. Events like a virtual piano Olympics, monster concert, and piano fest will keep children motivated and engaged. Information at usu.edu slash ycpiano. When it comes to voting rights, 2020 marks multiple significant anniversaries, 150 years since a Utahan became the first woman to vote in the modern nation, 100 years since the 19th Amendment was passed, and 55 years since the Civil Rights Act became law. Join us on August 26th at the historic Cache County Courthouse to celebrate suffrage and the activists who worked and are still working to ensure these rights are protected. More information at UPR. 
Sometimes the best way to process complicated stuff is to talk it out. I'm Sam Sanders, and that is what we do on my show from NPR. It's called It's Been a Minute. That's another way of saying let's catch up. And that is what we do on my show every week. Me and a few journalists dissecting the news, the culture, and everything else. It's Been a Minute from NPR. Talk soon. Tune in to It's Been a Minute here on Utah Public Radio starting this Saturday at 1 o'clock. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Bill Shapiro. I uh, recently wrote an article in the New York Times Magazine called The Strange Lure of Other People's Photos. He's author of the uh, co-author children's book, Gus and Me, which he co-wrote with Keith Richards. And uh, what we keep, 150 people share the one object that brings them joy, magic, and meaning, and other people's love letters, 150 letters that you were never meant to uh, see. I want to talk about that now, uh, if that's okay, other people's love letters. I was reading uh, an article you wrote in HuffPost about the first love letter that you read that was not addressed uh, to you. I wonder if you'd tell us that story. Yes, that is true. <laughs> I, I sort of broke the cardinal rule, but um, I um, was at the home of a woman that I was um, dating at the time, and this was, this was years ago, and um, I happened to see a letter on the counter, and it was sort of out there. It wasn't tucked away, and I, and I didn't look at it, and I didn't look at it, and then, and then I looked at it, and, um, and I read it, and I knew I shouldn't have, and I read it again, and I had this just flood of feelings of, of you know, guilt and voyeurism, but also this kind of thrill um, at, at reading um, sort of about her relationship with somebody else. And, and, the, and the letter wasn't dated, so I had no idea, you know, when that was from. It could have been 10 years before, or it could have been, you know, a day before. Um, and I also wondered, you know, why it was out there. Um, did she sort of accidentally on purpose leave it out there for me to find? And if so, why? Um, and... If not, why was she looking at it? Was you know was I not giving her something she needed, and she wanted to relive something? Anyway, it raised all these questions, and you know, oftentimes when something raises all kinds of questions and conflicting emotions at the same time, it feels like something that's worth exploring. And so, so that's what I did. I started you know asking some of my closest friends, "Can I see your love letters?" Um, and that's not something we tend to ask other people. And um, uh, it felt like there was a book there. Uh, so you just put the word out, and then people complied, I guess, sent you letters? Well, I started, you know, I started to, I wanted to sort of test the hypothesis. Do You know, do people keep their love letters? Would, would they share them? And were they all as fascinating to read as that first one? Um, and so I asked my tight group of friends, and the answer was yes. And then I started sort of canvassing the country. Um, and I wanted to get letters from all types of people all over the country. So, you know, rich, poor, black, white, gay, straight, um, big city, small town, et cetera, to kind of create this quilt of experience. And, you know, in the end, some of the letters were 150 years old, and, and some were text messages, and some, some were graffiti, um, and, and some were, you know, pen to paper. 
um, and some were quite provocative and sexy, and some were more like not what you would expect as a love letter. They were like, hey, you know, we'd been together for 10 years. How could you do this to me? You bleep, bleep, bleep. Um, I'm going to leave you at the truck stop. Goodbye. Um, but but to me, that all felt like a facet of love. So So I included both the sort of you know, rose-colored um, letters, but also the sort of thorny, prickly ones as well. I want to read this, uh, just a, a, an excerpt from your article there. Uh, here's something I learned about love letters. You write, most die an ignominious death. They're torn up, tossed out, fed to the dog, burned, buried, and flushed. The letters on the pages that follow are the survivors. And you go on to say, the fascination here is more complex than a simple case of voyeurism, uh, because on a deeper level, the heart you're looking into is your own. So when we think about, you know, for me, when somebody writes you a love letter, they are seeing you oftentimes um, at your best and maybe the way you want to be seen. And those are the times when your heart can be wide open. And we're not always like that. Even, even if we remain in love with somebody for years and years and years, you know those those first um, months or years when you're when you're sending love letters, uh, it's an extremely special time in a in a relationship, and so they really do take you back and open your own heart even to yourself. Are there any that uh, especially stand out to you that you you remember, you know, very clearly? Oh, I would. You know, I think that book is book published about 13 years ago, mm-hmm. so um, I don't have it in front of me, um, but so the answer is, um, I, it would probably take me a moment to think about it, and, and I don't want to leave you with dead air. You're right. <laughs> here, here, <laughs> uh, here's one that's uh, that's published in this article, it's just one page, uh, uh, handwritten, uh, says, are you sad? You should know that I that still my life is consumed by you. You know, it's, that's poignant. And then you also right. re- reproduce a kind of a longer one that I won't take time uh, for, but uh, it's it, there's a twist. There's kind of a uh, you know hopes and dreams of this person. Then you find out in the second paragraph um, that uh, this woman. I remember this one. This woman says, "I I <laughs> do I wish you weren't married with kids. I wasn't living with someone." Right. So it kind of an impossibility there. You know, after you have the first paragraph that uh, that she pours her heart out with, with her hopes with this man, but then she goes on to say, "I, I it, it can't be." And, right. Uh, so they they were clearly having a sort of um, you know an affair and illicit relationship, which is not clear you know from the first paragraph. Um, so yeah, that was um, you know a lot of these love letters had had um, twists like that. You know, there was also um, a, a series of letters that a woman wrote to her dead boyfriend who died unexpectedly, and she was still grieving and kind of working it out. And um, you know, it was a love letter, a long love letter, which ended basically, "I hate you for leaving me. I hate you for ending us." And mm-hmm. I thought that was very poignant as well. Yeah. As you say, you're interested in the thorns, right, as well as the the blossoms. It, it love is a complex and messy thing. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, in, in some ways to me, the love letters that are like, oh, your eyes are so beautiful. You know, you make me smile. Those are nice. But, but really, the ones that have layers and are complex and, and, that, and that treat us as the complicated humans that we are, um, to me, are much more, you know, are much more intriguing. Mm-hmm. We have six or seven minutes left, and I want to uh, get back to other uh, to the the objects that we that, that we keep. And uh, uh, of course, you uh, you you and your co-author wrote a wrote a book, "What We Keep." Um, and, and so, in an article about this, uh, you uh, you say that you everyone you say asks us two things: what's the weirdest object you came across, and you answer that question, and where did you get the idea for the book? Do you remember the weirdest object you came across? Well, um, I don't remember how I answered in the um, in the book, to be honest. But but like, and, and you can you can tell me. But 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 for me, what was so remarkable about this is that it wasn't so much about the strangeness of the object, but the unpredictability of the story. Mm. So, for example. You know, one of the objects was a dollar ninety nine bottle opener. You know, couldn't have been more plain, regular, non you know nondescript. And yet, it was owned by a guy's grandmother who was an accountant, a, 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 C, a CPA, um, in the '60s who lived in San Francisco. And, and he learned later that that was a front, that she was actually the state's biggest marijuana importer and dealer. <laughs> and, but she did it to help people. Um, you know, she wasn't really in it for the money. She did it to, to help sick people and to help people have a good time. Um, and that changed the direction of his life. Uh, and he started working in a, in a, a cardio unit and opened a nonprofit for kids. So anyway, I thought that was sort of an interesting one. Yeah, you do mention that in this in this article. Yeah, the drug dealing grandma. Another one you mentioned is a Syrian banknote pierced by shrapnel. Uh, that's that's poignant. Um, so uh, maybe tell me a little bit about how you got the idea for for the book. I, I understand that the, kind of the germ was uh, Superstorm Sandy. So so there was a few threads that sort of came together. One was Superstorm Sandy. I, I, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and um, and my co-author Naomi Wax and I were. Um, you know, after Superstorm Sandy hit, we went down to a, a neighborhood here that had just been inundated, flooded. Um, and we saw people, you know, a couple of days after the storm, dragging their precious belongings to the curb because they were ruined by the water. So that, you know, that that was one thing that got us thinking about that. And, and also to sort of circle back to the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, it was uh, around a time when I started seeing a lot of photographs of Syrian refugees leaving Syria, and they could only bring one, you know, moving towards Turkey, and they could only bring one sack of, you know, one bag with them. And and uh, I wondered what they brought, you know, yes, some food, some clothes, but did they bring a single object that would remind them of the home where, where they and their parents and their grandparents had lived, you know, for generations? Um and then, and then there was the moment that that um, Naomi and I found a locket at a at a junk sale, um, and the locket said, "You know, 1911." It was inscribed, "My love forever." And again, um, you know, these themes sort of stay in my head. Um, we wondered, 
how this locket that had meant so much to, to these two people, my love forever, ended up at the, at the, you know, at the end of a driveway for sale to strangers. So I'm really taken with these stories of objects that, that have secret lives, um, that objects that tell stories and, and, and that hold meaning. In fact, there's a website, whatwekeep.org. Right, and a lot of lot, yes, of, and lot there are of stories, stories here. on there uh, yeah. that, that, that people can look at. Uh, it, it's it is pointy. That that locket really strikes me. Right, that you say that the 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 story has become untethered from the object it, itself. We we it's a mystery. It's like the photographs. It, it, exactly. You know, at at, at one point, uh, a photograph of grandma and her and, and a grandchild is up on the mantelpiece, and it's the most precious thing. But then a couple generations later, when nobody recognizes the grandma and can't, doesn't know who that little kid is, um, you know, on her lap on the porch, it's just an object. It, you know, the, the story has been separated from the object, um, just like the locket, and, and it loses its meaning. And, you know, and in that way, it, it, it dies its own death. As we said earlier in the conversation, I want to end uh, here uh, our relationship with physical objects is perhaps changing and maybe, I don't know, more meaningful things to us in the future will be uh, stuff in the cloud. Um, and, and if that happens and I don't know if something meaningful has been lost. I mean, I, I happen to think so. I'm sort of a, a tactile person. Um, but I, but I see in my kids, they are not as, attached to physical objects um, as I am. And so I think, I think you're right. So uh, just have a couple of minutes left. Um, what, what are you, um, what are you photographing at, at this point? Uh, by the way, do you, you take photographs like we all do on, on the phone or do you have other gear that you use? Um, I take most of my photographs on the phone. I do have a, um, uh, a small camera um, that I take a lot of sort of street photographs with. Um, you know, one of the things I'm doing now on my on my Instagram feed, I have, you know, I put some of my own photos there, but I'm finding photographers who um, are sort of emerging or, or, or don't have a big following yet, but who are doing really interesting, taking really interesting pictures and telling interesting stories. And I'm sort of sharing their story and a little bit about them and sharing their photos with um uh with the people who follow me so i'm i'm hoping to create a little bit of a community and and um and and you know and by doing that again to circle back to where we started letting people see what it's like to see through this particular photographer's eyes uh no matter where they live if it's in um a small town in this country or, or a small town in, you know, uh, Georgia in the former Soviet Union. That's where we started, wasn't it? Uh, that, that's the big reason you do this, uh, look at life through different eyes. Maybe we all need that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Bill Shapiro, uh, he's author of an article in the New York Times Magazine, well worth checking out, uh, The Strange Lure of Other People's Photos, uh, some books you can check out as well, What We Keep, 150 People Share the One Object That Brings Them Joy, Magic, and Meaning, Other People's Love Letters, 150 Letters You Were Never Meant to See, and there's a children's book, Gus and Me, story of my granddad and my first guitar, which he co-wrote with uh, Keith Richards and Barnaby Harris. Uh, you can find him on Instagram, at Bill uh, Shapiro. Um, 
And uh, there's a website, as I mentioned, uh, for what we keep, whatwekeep.org. Well, Bill Shapiro, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I guess I should also mention real quick um, that what we keep is being made into a, a streaming series um, for for Quibi um, with Cynthia Revo uh, involved in it. So hopefully you'll be able to see see these stories um, on your phone uh, coming soon. That's right. This is a series that's supposed to you know, meant for the phone. Uh, so that's coming coming soon. Okay, and it'll be called, I guess, what we keep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll look for that as well. Well, great. Wonderful. Well, well. thanks so much for, for spending some time with us. Really a pleasure speaking with you, Tom. Thanks for the great questions. Okay, thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. Did a supernatural beast cause the death of Sir Charles Baskerville? He set the dogs on me. Miss Stapleton? I hear the pack behind me. I must keep running. Miss Stapleton? James Marsters, Seamus Deaver, and Sarah Drew Starr in the Sherlock Holmes classic, The Hound of the Baskervilles, next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Friday evening from 9 to 11 here on Utah Public Radio as part of our new programming schedule. That's begun this week.